0: This is Fine, Episode 1.12, Healthcare? More like health don't care. Hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. And today uh, we're going to be uh, discussing the state of our healthcare system, which is a delightful topic that I know everybody is really excited about. Um, You know, this was motivated in large part by the passage in the house of this uh, AHCA bill, which was, uh, you know, which is sort of intended as a kind of, um, I suppose the, the purpose of it is to sort of repeal, repeal a lot of the things that the ACA, uh, that the ACA under Obama did. And, um, you know, one of, we're going to be talking sort of about, partly about the consequences of that bill, but also about the state of the system and sort of how we got to this place where um, you know, this kind of thing is uh, is actually being put forward in this legislation.
1: Right. I, I think one of the interesting things about the AHCA is it's not clear whether its design is primarily to repeal pieces of Obamacare that the conservative movement finds distinctly unpopular, most notably the tax increases under the ACA, or whether its purpose was to sort of pass the only thing that could possibly get through the House um, in in some sort of bizarre... Uh, at least we accomplished this even if everyone in America hates the bill it will never actually pass uh kind of enterprise like it seems to me like it may have had a political purpose and not an actual policy purpose, which is mildly strange given again how unpopular the bill is
0: right i I think that that's been kind of the received wisdom in the among the people who kind of discuss this this issue uh to me I think that like I have you know, you know, I, I've been skeptical for a long time that there is anything that's called a Republican healthcare plan. Like, I just don't think it exists. And so, you know, I never really expected that there would be some kind of po- like actual policy behind any of this, that it, it would just it, that it it is like definitely a political move. And it has. I think no real policy content under th- other than the upward redistribution of wealth, which is just like Republican politics writ large in general.
1: Right. I mean, there's one functional thing it does, which is $800 billion of Medicaid cuts to fund approximately something like $650 billion of tax cuts. Right. And like everything else then seems like massively unpopular healthcare market disrupting gravy. Um, but it's weird that the the arguments, you know, originally they didn't have enough House votes to pass the bill. And all of the arguments were around that gravy, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. It's like, all right, well, we agree that the Republican caucus has is contentless as far as healthcare policy is established. I mean, they've had literally, you know, what, seven years, right, to come up with a replacement plan, um, and and yet they're still sort of completely um, absent from an actual policy prescription. So I agree with you on that, but but there do seem to be factions that are pushing. For or there were factions that leading up to the vote that were pushing for their own sort of flavors of weirdness in this bill. Uh, like, what, what do you mean? Well, I mean, like, you had the Freedom Caucus, right? And the Freedom Caucus was very resistant to um, preserving a lot of the guaranteed issue that's a part of Obamacare, right? So the ACA says that, you know, you have to have um, basically community rating and guaranteed issue. Uh, in other words, that a pre-existing condition can not affect you and also that health care plans can't discriminate based on costs. And it seems like the, the Freedom Caucus, one of the reasons the original time the AHCA went through was because most Americans strongly support this, um, you know, they hadn't touched it in the beginning. And um, the Freedom Caucus votes really bailed. And in this, uh, in this sort of go round, that was, it looks like one of the main policy levers that flipped uh, in order to get a lot of those votes, um, which, you know, at least suggests there's some sort of principle there, which is that they want to uh, charge sicker people and women more for their health care. Uh, which is, you know, a principle of a type. Sure, I I guess one
0: could call that a principle. Um, Yeah, right. The thing that strikes me about this is that there are people like in the conservative world, I think there's this guy, Philip Klein, who's kind of, I don't know, he he's often cited as a Republican, like serious Republican thinker on health care. And like his line is, uh, well, we think that the government should not like, be involved in healthcare at all. Okay, fine. Like, if that's your position, uh, like, I disagree with that just on a practical basis, but uh, that's a position that I think can be argued and debated and, like, at least engaged at some level of intellectual honesty. The position that, like, the government should be involved, but the way that it should be involved is, like, by making healthcare worse, that's, like, not a, like, there's no intellectual honesty in here. There's no, like, real policy. It's just, a kind of um it's just a kind of maneuver that says well on the one hand yeah we recognize that people actually hate the current system and want it to be better but we're not actually committed to making it better we're going so we're just going to make it worse but pretend we're going to make it better
1: oh, to- that's what it is totally agreed totally agreed i mean i think one of the weird things again about the vote is um if your position was i don't want the government involved in healthcare at all none of the freedom caucus members should have voted for this well that's right and if your position as a moderate republican was that you absolutely needed it to be so that you didn't harm people who had pre-existing conditions or you preserve the idea of community rating you also shouldn't have voted for this because the the bill sort of um both has a lot of uh government interference but also sort of cripples and again interference we should think back to last podcast like there's no natural market in healthcare so it has a lot of government involvement um but but then sort of what are they eight billion dollars to 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 fund high-risk pools it's for, comical I mean it, it it's like a it's like what I think, pay for something like half a million people for one year or something. It, it, it makes no sense at all.
0: Yeah, I, I think this is a good continuation of sort of the conversation that we we're having with Marshall two weeks ago, as, as you mentioned, uh, in that, you know, at that at that time, we talked about how, um, you know, there was this, uh, this idea that markets are like natural and they're somehow like self-equilibrating. Like none of that is really true. And it's not true, for example, like in the labor market, but it's also like doubly or triply or even... Exponentially untrue in the healthcare market, and um, I think one of the one of the guides, I guess, that I've been using um, to understanding sort of the different the different ways in which this is untrue is this uh, recent book by um, a woman named Elizabeth Rosenthal, who was uh, at one point a doctor herself. Uh, then she went into journalism and she uh, worked for the New York Times d- doing health reporting. Uh, and now she's written this book called American Sickness. And it's sort of a uh, litany of various ways in which the healthcare, the American healthcare system fails us. Um, and the remarkable thing about this book I mean, I think that it contains a lot of things that maybe people who are sort of quote unquote wonks already know, but maybe a lot of things that Americans, uh, you know, in general don't actually know and uh you know the first thing that strikes me about this is that is how fantastically opaque the entire mm. system is like there is absolutely no way of finding out what something costs how much it's worth like what you'll be charged for it uh there's like it, it's it's like living in this postmodern world where there's like there's no truth there's no fact of the matter it's just like you just get these ta- tables of numbers and nobody knows where these numbers originate, what they mean, like whether they correspond to any measurable reality. So that is like the zeroth order level at which kind of the system just completely falls apart as like as a, as a market.
1: Right. There, there's no price transparency. I, I had, um, unfortunately, a, a, an ankle injury last year, and so I've had to have two ankle surgeries. And what I thought was funny was the first ankle surgery was much more extensive. They put a lot of pins in. It lasted for like five hours. They, you know, fixed my – got my leg working again. The second one was much shorter. It was basically to clip out some bad cartilage. Um, Now, luckily, I have very good health insurance through my employer, so I just paid a copay for each of these. But what was interesting was the second surgery, despite – being physically much shorter and involving a simpler surgical plan. Actually, when I looked at the bills, which my insurer paid, ended up costing more. And each of them cost, I mean, I think the second one cost something like $35,000, and the first one cost $30,000. So thank you, healthcare. Um, But, right, it's totally bizarre. If you'd asked me ex-ante, like, just try and estimate which one of these procedures will cost less money, I I would have gotten that completely wrong. And if I'd asked my surgeon, I'm not sure he would have known.
0: Right. Uh, One of the things that uh, Rosenthal emphasizes in her book is sort of the extent to which it's impossible not just for uh, patients but for doctors even like well-meaning doctors who don't want to cost their patients money don't want to cost insurers money whatever uh, it's impossible to know what you're actually going to be charged and one of the reasons for this is that there are all these different intermediaries uh, within the healthcare market and each of those intermediaries essentially you know takes a cut of any money that flows through them um, and the way that the system is constructed is to incentivize as many of those intermediaries as possible. So you end up with a situation where like nobody can really know because the only person who has that knowledge is the intermediary who sets the price. And the way that they set their price is also tied into you know, what they think they can get from the insurer, what their uh, costs are in relationship to other intermediaries that m- they may be relying upon. So you get this like really complicated web of dependencies that is, you know, I think it is totally impossible to resolve.
1: Right. And and I think there are a couple important pieces of that. So not only is it totally opaque, but as you noted, there's sort of an inflationary aspect because the providers themselves don't know how much some of their cost inputs can charge. They're constantly sort of inflating their prices, right? And that seems really problematic. And then, of course, the second thing is, what's the function of price in a market? Well, you know, if I'm buying tomatoes and there are the more expensive organic tomatoes and there are the less expensive tomatoes, I can eat them, then decide on next Thursday when I'm making a salad, which tomato do I want to buy? Um, These prices in this market also serve no sort of... um, function, right? Like if you think about how markets work and what price they're supposed to actually signal, uh, when I get another ankle surgery, I mean, knock on wood, hopefully I won't have to, but am I going to try and, even if I could, no cost, how would I comparison shop? Like what, what does price to quality even mean? Right, exactly. And I think
0: that there's, a um, you know, one of the people who I think has done a lot of really good research on this and reporting on this is a Vox reporter by the name of Sarah Cliff. Um, she's kind of, she's like their health correspondent. And Um, some time ago, it was like a year or so ago, she wrote something about how she herself was trying to, uh, figure out she was, she decided to do this experiment. Like I, she had some ankle injury and she needed to, I don't know, have, I think it was also like an ankle surgery situation. And
1: she said, all wonks hurt their lower legs.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And she was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go and do some research about, you know, how, how I can choose like the least expensive treatment or something, and it turned out that this was basically impossible. Like she gave up after trying this for um, you know some amount of time, and this is a person whose job is literally to understand the mechanics of price, you know, of healthcare pricing and healthcare market.
1: She probably knows more about healthcare pricing, healthcare markets than, than almost anyone else in the U.S. Aaron Carroll, I think, wrote a similar thing. He he writes for the New York Times and then also occasionally for Vox, and he's a physician and a healthcare economist, right? And and it's similar sort of uh, uh, issues, so. right?
0: So so I mean, this just goes to show kind of how complicated the system is, and how that you know a person whose job it is to understand it still doesn't understand it really uh, when it comes to her own personal treatment, um, and. You know when it when you when you look at that and then somebody's telling you okay well you know you as a patient are supposed to go and shop for whatever like I mean how are you going to do that That's a, it's just an impossible thing
1: to ask of people and and here's another problem with the system and with the idea that you know oh well we we shouldn't have a government participation in it people should be responsible for their own healthcare like not only is there the moral component which is just that obviously injuries and, and health are, are Usually not anyone's personal responsibility in, in any meaningful sense. The The second point of it is the vast majority of spending is done by a very few people. So this isn't like something where you can distribute cost evenly and pay for it yourself. Like, the, right. this is an insurance market. It is a case where, you know, you're... Most people's house doesn't burn down in the same way that most people don't get cardiac surgery in a year. But the people who have cardiac surgery represent a disproportionate amount of the cost.
0: If you are going to build some kind of uh, structure that's going to aim to insure everybody, then buy this you know, biological, this biological fact of just like how people get sick is going to dictate that in any given year, uh, some, you know, the people who get the sickest are going to consume the most, but that, but those people are a relatively small
1: fraction of the overall population. So whenever you hear these arguments, I think it's very, this is maybe a philosophical point about one of the ways that um, the... (laughs) moral underpinnings of free market capitalism or other things have have damaged American solidarity. You hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to pay for health care that doesn't affect me, or I don't want to pay for other people's issues. But that's, that's literally the whole nature of living in society with other people and deciding that health is a, is a public good that we want to focus on. Like, there, there's no way for you to be a responsible person and pay for your own health insurance that doesn't involve paying for other people's if you have an understanding of how Uh, sickness and health care cost is distributed
0: right and and i think that you know people who say these things i think maybe aren't like thinking it through all the way because um you know if you had a system where for example nobody was responsible to anybody you know for anybody else's care you didn't have any kind of insurance market uh you would just end up like everybody was kind of a you know a solo actor in some ways uh, I mean, the, this would compound the problems that you currently see even more because um, you would just have no recourse as, as an individual against any what, what anybody wanted to charge you. You know, right now there are sort of, sort of like some kind of these patchwork limits, but if you didn't have this, like if it was just a free for all, uh, you would be screwed, right? Like you would everybody would be in medical bankruptcy instead of just some of us.
1: I think there's another component too, which I haven't really understood, which is why there's not been more um, business class support for single payer healthcare. And the reason is because it's an incredible obligation for existing businesses is the healthcare cost of their employees, especially to the extent that healthcare costs are provided um, past retirement but before Medicare, which is the case for some public employers, but oftentimes for private employers as well. And the other thing that it does is that your if your employees are healthier broadly, like you have access to, um, you know, better human capital. It's like it's, it's, there there are a lot of social reasons to think, boy, this is something that I as an independent employer or a small business don't want to take on the risk pooling of my 10 employees and would rather participate in the risk pooling of 300 million Americans um, and and not have to like every small business basically has to weirdly be a sort of insurance adjuster. As well as being uh, whatever small business they're operating in, and every large business that has legacy employees ha- has, oftentimes, these incredibly staggering healthcare liabilities. And so it's it's that it has been a little confusing to me that there hasn't been more agitas from from that group of people to be like, wait a second, you know, we can we can push this out on the government. That that seems like a much better uh, response to this problem.
0: Right. I think that you know, if you are a business that is not a healthcare business. Uh, why would you want to be doing this right why would you want to have an entire department whose job it was to understand like the insurance system uh or you know figure out like how they can get how you can get your employees into um you know into the correct insurance pool or whatever uh you know this is something that Rosenthal leads off with in her book and she you know she talks about how the the origin of employer-sponsored health care was really just this like weird coincidence of basically sort of full employment during World War World War II and following verse and uh the idea and and the tax system at the time so basically they were uh these employee benefits were offered as a way of essentially they, they were tax exempt and so they basically provided uh, a channel through which employers could compensate their employees better uh, and essentially didn't cost them as much as it would have
1: to just like pay them more money should should we note though this is another way and I think we've we've talked about this article before but in which uh, in the US unlike in more homogenous European countries um, social goods were provided through the corporate sector as a way of stratifying by race
0: Right, and so this is uh, this is relevant to an article that we've we've talked about this uh, kind of socialism for white people uh, article uh, that was uh, published last year, um, and it definitely it's definitely true because you if you are uh, a if you're somebody who has employer sponsored health insurance like typically you are better you're uh, you're more wealthy uh, wealth correlates with race in America as we all know so it definitely is this like structure that. Disproportionately rewards people who already are in a good place to begin with, and really punishes people who are in that middle, um, you know, that isn't covered by, say, Medicare or uh, Medicaid, but is, but you know has to rely on either self financing or employer insurance that isn't nearly as generous. Uh, so, which you know, I think explains in to a great degree why people who find themselves in that position, like really resent it because, uh, you know, you look up and you see people who can already just like afford the good care. You look down, you see people for whom the government is paying, uh, and you're like stuck in the middle and maybe you're getting some ACA subsidies, which, you know, didn't even exist before the ACA, but you're still, you still might not be getting enough to actually get you the health care that you need.
1: And your premiums might have actually gone up because before the ACA, you might've had basically a sham insurance policy one that didn't cover cancer or that had a lifetime cap. Um, and so your premiums might've been less and you might've been sort of psychologically comforted, even if not actually protected from, from medical bankruptcy. Um, but can we talk about that? Cause that's one of the weirdest yeah. fucking things about the HCA. So Trump comes in, here's his healthcare plan. I mean, he's not exactly a policy wonk, but the AHCA makes it far more expensive for Trump voters. Like, you could not target a bill to make it more expensive for people who are in their, say, 50 to 65 rural areas, areas that don't have competitive healthcare care markets. Um, you know, you replace existing subsidies with a flat tax credit. It's bizarre. I mean, I think the, the upshot was reporting some of them could pay like $10,000 more a year. And, like, yeah. you know, white people in their late 50s in rural parts of America, these are not, you know, Hillary Clinton superfans. Like, yeah,
0: it's I mean, the politics of this is just like really amazing that they, um, you know, really voted to fuck their own voters um, and and constituents. I don't know exactly sort of what the explanation for this is, other than to say that, you know, there was this discussion about, again, in, in sort of wonk circles about how, well, you know, Democrats uh, wanted to get into office and pass health care reform. And so they had this plan that they worked out um, and then they got power and then they had a sympathetic president. So, you know, they um, put together this bill. Right. And that's kind of like the normal, quote unquote, process of like how legislation happens. And then Republicans, you know, were like, oh, we hate this bill. And they had seven years to do something about it, put together an alternative. They didn't do that. They got into power. And now they're passing this thing that is going to just devastate their own constituents. Um, and again, like, I I think the explanation for this is not that like Republicans are somehow less committed to like policy or whatever. It's just that they're committed to like bad ends and they're willing to see that through. They are willing to vote for this, um, destructive legislation, which, uh, because probably, you know, I don't know whether rightly or wrongly, but they calculate that they, you know, don't think that they're going to pay the political price for it, maybe, or they think, you know, I don't know if they think the price is worth it. I I don't. But who knows? You know, maybe they believe that too.
1: Paul Ryan Wright really thinks that a tax cut for me, for example, of a lot of money is worth more than the, uh, you know, screwing his suburban constituents and increasing their premiums. Yeah. And
0: I think and I think it's entirely possible that like, just Paul Ryan doesn't believe that they're going to take the hit for it because um and you know that gets into a lot of structural questions about voting in america that you know probably outside the scope of this discussion but um you know they might be right we don't know um i guess we're gonna see and and the other i guess the other calculation here is that you know oh maybe the senate will just kill this and we'll we'll all we'll all get to look good for voting for this shitty bill and not have to actually you know
1: Eat the consequences because the Senate will save us. Maybe that's part of it. First of all, I think that's insane. I I it is insane. It might be part of the calculation. I do think the Senate will kill the bill, and and here's why. I think that I know that they're meeting together, the like group of thirteen men. They can't even get their symbolism right, right? Don't have a group with thirteen people in it. Don't have it be all men. Just like easy lessons from the New Testament. But like the the deal is that that the current bill cuts Medicaid so drastically. And you have Republican senators from states like Arkansas um, and Kentucky, and there's just no way that they can keep in those Medicaid cuts. I mean, 10 percent of the population of some of the states was covered by the Medicaid expansion. There, it, It'd be it'd be absolutely suicide for them to do so.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I mean, you know, this is sort of like I, I feel uncomfortable maybe citing this book because I disagree with a lot of its reasoning but there's you know there's this uh, famous book like what's the matter with kansas it was like thomas frank's you know 2004 autopsy of the election um i think that book gets a lot of things wrong but i think that it provides maybe like one way of thinking about it which is that you know you can vote to screw over your constituents even uh and you might not pay the price because the alternative is like you know uh, democratic control of House and Senate, which will lead to abortions and forced gay marriages and like all kinds of, uh, you know, terrible sinfulness. So maybe the, you're just like, that's the calculus. Um, I, I don't entirely agree with this view. I think it, you know, but but I think that that might be what they're thinking. Right. Like, right. We're, I mean, just gonna, we're just going to we're just going to write it out like Sam Brownback still governor, despite like destroying, I mean, just completely destroying uh, the Kansas economy.
1: So. right, right, and that you know it's actually it is a good point, so Sam Brownback's allies in the state legislature in Kansas have had some setbacks, but he and um the other uh and the senator from Kansas name I, forget, I think Pat Roberts was that the is that the senator? anyway but right, they've survived uh pretty strong bids from from Democrats against them um on the basis of exactly the issues you mentioned i just I'm not sure that plays everywhere, I mean, maybe that plays in Arkansas, it didn't work for Bobby Jindal right in Louisiana. um you know, uh, his successor, he was deeply unpopular. His Republican successor was actually replaced by a Democrat who won the, the gubernatorial race down in Louisiana. I think also it speaks to something we've talked about in earlier episodes, too, which is one thing that Democrats absolutely need to do is motivate the currently non-voting who are among the people likely to be, again, screwed by this, with, you know, especially on Medicaid expansion, and get them to the polls. Yeah, I agree.
0: Uh, I wanted to talk more about Um, I think, Rosenthal's book, because I think it sort of uh, um, it has a lot of different interesting components. You know, she breaks it down in terms of both like what physicians are doing, what hospitals are doing, what drug manufacturers are doing. So she, you know, she has a chapter devoted to uh, kind of the the actions of each one of these things. And the thing that struck me about it sort of taking it in aggregate was the degree to which uh, and and this is something that sort of like made me uh, really sympathetic to the uh, rational choice people, which is the degree to which like a lot of this is really enabled by legislation and regulation and the capture thereof. So you end up with these situations where, for example, like the doctors get together and decide what, like, what is a reasonable amount to charge for like whatever X procedure, right? And so, but but that's like, you know, that that's a situation in which you're letting the people who are going to be the beneficiaries of this set their own prices, and then you have this. Uh, hideously complicated patent system which is supposed to theoretically spur innovation but what actually ends up happening is that you've you're incentivizing because of the way that the patent system interacts with fda regulations you're incentivizing people for example to keep generics off the market by um retooling your drug that is meant to treat like disease x to do like also oh by the way this also treats disease y and now like the clock is reset Um, Or uh, now I've got uh, a delivery system like, you know, before you had to, I don't know, take a I mean, this is like a real example from Rosenthal's book before you had to take i think it was with the birth control pill that was that you just swallowed and like now we've made it chewable and we'll stop manufacturing the old one so now your only choice is like if you want it, if you want this particular birth control formulation your only choice is to like take this chewable thing that is going to not be available as a generic for a long time because now the clock has been reset again
1: and and there's a real distortion too in the research itself so I think one of the things that's often cited as a, a credit to the free market healthcare system in the US is, oh, we subsidize all this drug research for the rest of the world, et cetera. But the problem is, we subsidize a lot of Me Too drug research where people try and copy similar mechanisms to existing blockbusters and they underfund research in, I mean, the well known one is antibiotics. I think this came up on your Facebook thread um, because it, it's perceived accurately that an antibiotic won't be a sort of billion dollar drug. But there are lots of areas of clinical discovery that are under research because someone says, well, you know what, if I can have another type of statin, or I can have, and the statins are great, look, they've reduced mortality, but you know, you don't need a six prescription statin. You can just use one of the generics or, you know, the SSRIs. The, they're very effective, right, for depression. But again, how many of them were there? Well, the reason was because they were all billion dollar drugs, right? And, and the drug research absolutely pours after these very narrow channels. And it's not clear to me that this is actually the most effective way um, to, uh, you know, research sort of novel compounds that are, that are fighting diseases, uh, because it, it is, again, sort of uh, purely driven by this, but not just a market, but a very bizarrely, uh, you know, constrained market.
0: This is something that, uh, you know, may be worth more discussion in, in the future. But I, I think that a lot of this idea that are really expensive and hideously inefficient healthcare system somehow spurs research or is like conducive to research or innovation, I guess, is the word that is now being used, um, the terminology of choice.
1: Get your decade of bullshit correct. It's,
0: I think it really mistakes the mechanics by which like innovation happens. This is, you know, the the example of like multiple statins or multiple SSRIs, I think is a really good one. It's like, how innovative is it when you, um, let's say, invent, like you, when you have a different kind of bar of soap right like that's i mean just to, if you look at this from the perspective of like household products there, there's a, the, the marginal benefit from like an additional kind of brand of soap or like a brand of like cleaner or something like that all this kind of stuff is like well i mean it's good if you have it but if you don't have it it's it's not a particularly like salient yeah there are definitely drugs that treat diseases that are um you know rare because the variety of human ailments is uh, quite large but for a lot of common stuff, you just don't need that much variety. You you have things that you know work, and there you should just you should just use the things that work. And developing like multiple channels that of drug that work in different ways almost certainly like doesn't actually benefit anybody. It just allows the pharmaceutical companies to charge uh, to charge more. You know, for the same product, so we we don't have a good conception, I think, of like what actually constitutes like legitimate innovation and what just constitutes
1: hunting for patents. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think another thing is it pushes delivery in, uh, it pushes payment out to these types of. Um, intellectual property-related healthcare delivery items as opposed to service-related items. And so even if the service-related item might actually be more health-enhancing. So I think there are these great examples, and they, they they did this with some Medicare studies where, you know, if you paid community healthcare workers to basically make home visits with people, hey, are you taking your generic hypertension medicine? How are you, Mrs. Rodriguez? Like, can we see your feet, literally, because, you know, like... Um, the foot health is actually a great marker in old people of, of total body health, You incredible sort of uh, results compared to very expensive hospitalizations, treatments, things like amputation with diabetes, et cetera. And yet, you know, it's pulling teeth to get our existing healthcare system to pay for this because this doesn't look like a type of healthcare, or more cynically, it's not a type of healthcare that is held by an IP rent by like a large patent owner.
0: Yeah, I think this brings me to kind of a... Uh, another complaint that I, I, I have with the system, and I'll mention sort of a phenomenon that I think we've discussed uh, um, on the show in the past, which is uh, this idea of Goodhart's law, which is that if you you set metrics, and uh, the question is, you know, uh, can the metrics be gamed? Like, is achieving the metrics actually achieving the result that you want? Um, and I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence that, especially in healthcare, that uh, that is not the case. So. Uh, when you think about like metrics in healthcare, uh, the things that matter are like actual outcomes and you can't really fudge those, right? Like if uh, infant mortality is like a number and it has a specific meaning and if you reduce it, that is good. And if you if you if if it increases, that is bad. And the same thing is true for a lot of like health outcomes. Like do people live longer? Uh, are they, you know, leading? Well, maybe the question is like, are they leading better lives? It's sort of subjective, but, uh, you know, longevity is something that you can measure. Um, you know, whether mobility is is something that you can measure, like these are all things that are actually like that have sort of objective correlates in the world of healthcare outcomes. Whereas like, a lot of the stuff that people are looking at is like, uh, and I think that this is a great example. um, Again, also from Rosenthal's book, but else from elsewhere as well, uh, is this idea of like medical loss ratio. So the medical loss ratio is something that basically, there's a regulation or it's part of the uh, ACA that says that uh, insurance companies have to spend like X percent on actually medical treatment. And if you're spending less than that, well, that means that you are, you know, probably like money's going to, uh, let's say, uh, administrative costs or something like that. So you think, oh, okay, that's good because now we can make insurance companies pay out more. But what that really does is that incentivizes them to just inflate the costs of the things that they're already paying for until they hit that number. So the medical loss ratio is like it's some kind of a proxy for how much is being spent on healthcare, but it's not really a proxy for it's not a good proxy for how much healthcare people are really getting, because you can meet that criteria in many different ways. And one of those ways is just to charge more or rather it's not to charge more, but let hospitals charge you more. That's so that that's the uh, the, the thing that allows it to be gained. And I think that this, the entire system is like full of these kinds of like metrics that are supposed to be proxies for something that we think corresponds to, you know, healthcare outcomes, but are actually just like numbers that can be uh, shifted up and down depending on how much you're willing to charge people or like, or whatever.
1: So does she go all the way in and support single payer? Because presumably in a single payer system, I'm a noted skeptic of the numbers that Senator Sanders had during his campaign for how much single payer would cost. Um, I think that if you look at provider salaries in the US, it's going to cost Substantially more than it, but it, it's clear that there are some savings to be derived, and 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 largely from exactly areas you're talking about, all these sort of points of of cost inflation and cost opacity. So does she go there? Or is she like, look, this is the the obvious solution, or does she have?
0: This is actually one of the areas in which I was kind of disappointed with um with the book. So the book is divided into two parts. One of them is kind of the the description of like what the problems are, and one of them, and the second part is a kind of her list of what she thinks are like plausible solutions. And some of those solutions I think are, you know, pretty good about that they have to do with like patent reforms and whatnot. But a lot of it is like focused on, you know, what you the patient can do or what, like what the doctors can do, for example, if they, you know, want to fight for their patients, which is good. I mean, it's good to know more and it's good to have, uh, to be in a situation like, you know, it's good as a doctor to fight for your patients. That's all fine. Uh, but I think that this is, this leans a little too heavily on, um, you know the individual in a situation that is really that really needs to be tackled systemically, and you know she has come out. Uh, I don't think she like explicitly endorses single payer in the sense that she's like, well, single payer would fix all of this. Uh, and but she has come out as like favorable, like very sympathetic to uh, single payer, and uh, in interviews. So um, I, I think that the the issue for I think for me with with single payer and like not um, when we when we talk about it is that. As you say like we don't talk about provider salaries because that is a very sensitive topic um and uh there was like this shitty shitty article in the national review but but i repeat myself about (laughs) how uh like would you want to have a doctor who can't afford a ferrari i mean like i think that should tell you everything you need to know about the contents of this uh, of this piece um but that is a conversation that we don't have right we don't say hey providers are going to have to take a haircut if you know, under a single payer system, because a system in which, you know, uh, a surgeon is making 500000 or $800,000 a year is probably like untenable.
1: Right. But although to, to defend providers for a second, I think one of the nice parts about a single payer system as well is you can imagine a world in which $150,000 of medical debt and having being paid thirty to $40,000 a year for a decade of indentured servitude like when you come out on the back end of that, I understand why a lot of people jump for the five hundred thousand dollars. I salary. absolutely
0: agree. I I don't I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that this is like really a problem with the way that education, like medical education, is structured. Uh, you know, the fact that we have these limits on how many doctors you can educate per year. That's you know essentially like the AMA as a cartel that keeps the supply of doc- doctors to what it thinks is like a good number instead of just allowing you know as many doctors to become educated as you as you as you want um but yeah I'm totally sympathetic to that I mean like it you know I have uh multiple doctor friends and they have uh you know very high debt levels um and it sucks like it's not I don't think it's good I, I think if you um have this notion that doctors are really like valuable uh mem- you know really valuable people to have um, then probably you shouldn't have a system that incentivizes like $200,000 of debt, because that in turn feeds back into a system where you're incentivized to like make more money because you have to, uh, you have to make up for like that $200,000 that you're.
1: And that's why we have a shortage of, of internists, of pediatricians, of gerontologists. Oh, right. 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 All of the core, you know, your family doctors who you need. Uh, Because there is a much lower paid specialties. Right. Right. Our our system of funding uh, pushes people outwards into, you know, plastic surgery, radiology, et cetera. Well, that's right.
0: And this is kind of uh, this feeds back. This turns the whole thing into like this vicious cycle where the people who make who are able to make the most money are the specialists, which like, you know, you need specialists like that does not to say specialists are bad. But you probably don't need. But you don't need everybody to be a specialist. You need a lot of uh, primary care physicians. You need you need pediatricians. You need, um, you know, internal medicine people. Uh, and the reason you need them is because they are the front lines of the defense, right? They are the front lines of healthcare. And catching a disease that can be you know uh, tackled with the antibiotics, uh, at, you know, at the first at the first instance is much better for healthcare outcomes than letting it progress or you know whether it's whether it's that or whether it's diabetes or anything else like typically uh you know the earlier you treat something the better it the better the outcome is and if you have fewer of those people who are the first to see uh patients then you are essentially creating a system where it's going to be more expensive to treat them down the road
1: yeah i mean i i think an interesting thing about this debate is healthcare is currently 1 in 6 dollars of gdp it's actually a little more than that but one in six dollars. of GDP. That is so much. And no one wants to pay one in six dollars of their income for health care. So so even this, I mean, I'm a single payer advocate, but I do think there's something where in order for a single payer to work, you have to convince enough Americans, roughly, that there are going to be these massive dividends and hopefully that these dividends won't come out of provider salaries. But I think they will come out of provider salaries. Like
0: that's that's my point, is that I think we don't have that debate because it's unpopular to say mm. doctors will have to like some doctors will have to earn less money and i think that the balance should be shifted like away from specialists and towards uh primary
1: care physicians but i mean and nurses how many sure think about how many healthcare administrators there are currently and that's an okay job you know, and, and and all the way down to the scribes, right? This is an incredible amount of, except for the, the ones who are actually, like the ones, everything related to billing or any of the opacity that, that Jerry was talking about, referring to the Rosenthal book. If you were to replace those people with actual healthcare providers, like think about just the, the gross quantity more of healthcare that, that would be, you know, in that system for, for citizens. This is something actually that... um
0: some time ago, I think it was, actually, it wasn't that long ago, I guess it was um, before he left office, there was this conversation with, uh, that the aforementioned Sarah Cliff was part of with Barack Obama. Um, I think that's the context in which it took place, but maybe I'm misremembering it, so I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But basically, the the question uh, went to, uh, it went to the question of single, uh, single payer, and Barack Obama... Gave a justification, which I think is just like totally bizarre, which is he said something like, Well, what happens to all those people who have jobs in the current healthcare industry? Like, you know, you say, okay, well, that would make healthcare delivery more efficient because you'd have a lot less administrative overhead. But then there are like these, you know, four million or however many people there are whose job it is to like, you know, do medical coding and, you know, move all these papers around. And like, what will happen to them? And the reason I think that that's like just totally crazy and like, detached from reality is that that's not a conversation that we have about any other kind of improvement. Like we don't say, oh, you know, I mean, some people want to say, I guess, but that's not, it's not part of the national conversation to say, oh, well, we should like totally outlaw automation because people will lose their jobs. Even though it is true that people like do in fact lose the, you know, some kinds of jobs to automation, but we don't say like we should stop doing this thing that is that we think is good because like people lose their jobs over it because we have this idea that, okay, like people will get other jobs. Um, And nobody, like you don't, nobody makes this argument in any other dimension or any other part of the economy. Uh, And I think it's just like, it's not really a serious objection. I mean, yes, like people will be displaced, I guess, if that, if that system goes away, but it's not like they have, you know, it's not like they'll be displaced into, I don't know, like whatever, just abject poverty. I mean, there's plenty of situations where you need administrators and office assistants and God knows who.
1: These are largely urban um, living people where there is, of course, uh, who who have skills that are involved in symbolic manipulation. Like, so in theory, these are people who are more flexible in the labor market. And I think to the other point about what Jerry's saying, I'd add this, which is that unlike many other disruptions, this one will increase aggregate demand. So, you know, if you have automation that takes away workers and makes goods cheaper, um, it's not clear that you increase aggregate demand in any way. But if you increase everyone's wages by drastically reducing the amount of their wages that goes to healthcare cost, they have just more money to buy stuff. That's right. And they're going to buy more stuff. And then someone needs to either make or serve them that stuff. That, so, that's right. Like, I, I think that single payer has a probably a larger growth impact. Then we should use dynamic scoring. You know, fuck these uh, crazy. Oh, if you cut cap gains again, uh, wealthy people will buy more yachts. No, the real trickle down is when you cut healthcare costs for every American, and they go out and they buy, uh, you know, another Ford. Like that's that's the real uh, aggregate demand stimulus. Right,
0: and and I think that there's a se- there's a secondary benefit here too. Well, not benefit, but um, so I, I think the discussion about single payer, uh, you know, often talks about eliminating kind of this insurance like this morass of insurance. Um, uh, I don't know. Swamp like the, people. <laughs> not swamp people, but well, the top, it's run by swamp people, but um, but more, more like just this complicated system where, you know, like your medical care has to travel through uh, all these different channels in order to be delivered to you. Uh, so that's good. Uh, but there's a secondary part of this too, which is that I think, one of the things that I would like to see in like so like single payer proposals is a an accompanying proposal to simplify a lot of these different rules that control, you know, what goes on the market, um, how it gets there, all this kind of stuff, because that is a huge part of this like cost inflation that's happening. Um, and it's all kind of, um, I think it's something that's being lost in the discussion, which it would so my favorite uh i guess uh combination is single payer but also let's do the thing where we don't allow um manufa- like for example pharma manufacturers to like arbitrarily keep their products off the market or keep generics off the market and i would even go so far as to say that like if you really consider um healthcare like a public good like why not Why doesn't I mean, why doesn't the government just build a factory and manufacture generic drugs like I would like to see somebody say that because you're like, okay fine. You don't want to manufacture this generic and you don't want to uh, sell insulin for pennies, you know, for the pennies that it costs to make. Fine. We'll do it ourselves. Right. Like there's no there's no right to like, you know, corner the market and then charge whatever the price, whatever the market will bear.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's the same thing as having, hey, well, in single payer, there'll be, you know, government issued equipment or government will presumably contract to build out the hospitals. Why not contract to build out the, the generic building blocks? I'd also say on the other side, and I'm trying to remember whether it was Brad DeLong or another economist, uh, this can also go in the show notes, but our current method of drug discovery, you know, the government could put out large prizes and then own the patent right for a drug. So instead of saying, "Well, everyone's going to try and make the next billion-dollar statin," you know, the government could just say, "Hey, if you make uh, an antibiotic that uh, you know cures MRSA or that doesn't look like the existing sort of antibiotics that are on the market, we'll give you two billion dollars." And this would spur a tremendous amount of research into antibiotics. And you could imagine, you know, instead of um, the current system where you know we have this Hep C drug now, which really cures Hepatitis C, which is an amazing breakthrough, but I think it costs ninety thousand dollars a patient. Like it's unbelievable. Um, and, you know, the federal government is actually paying for a tremendous amount of this because, believe it or not, a lot of people in institutionalized populations have hep C. So but, you know, what if they had just said, hey, we'll pay uh, the manufacturers this drug like, you know, three or four billion dollars if you come up with a hep C cure and then the government will own the patent and make it for like 100 bucks. Right. Um, and I think this is sort of a uh, underutilized space uh, in in, uh, you know, because this way, the government, it's its sort of like a large grant, right? And you're actually going to spur a lot more research than if you, uh, with this prize mechanism, because it doesn't, you know, it's not just going to be the winner. Many people are going to be doing research to create a drug, right? So <laughs>
0: that's right. I, I think that um, the way that we structure research, especially pharmaceutical research uh, in in academia is really like, it's really fucked up. Um, I think the roots of it go back to this uh, piece of 1980 legislation that's called the Bay Dole Act. And it, what it did was basically allow um, academic researchers who uh, got government grants to get patents um, on stuff that they developed with those grants. Uh, so you can see how this, again, this is a system that incentivizes a Uh, you know, searching for a really expensive uh, drug that um, that's going to make like billions and billions of dollars because, hey, now you own the patent for that. You can sell it, you know, to whatever GlaxoSmithKline or whoever you want uh, for a shit ton of money Um, and de-incentivizes, for example, treatments that, uh, you know, might be really beneficial, but are not particularly, you know, that are not particularly profitable.
1: Well, and this is one of actually the the problems I think with the ACA is that the ACA was a great bill, but the ACA's methods for its quote unquote bending the cost curve um, were all based around trying to incent uh, providers by paying them. And one of them was the mechanism that Jerry described earlier. You know, they had other sort of um, cute things around hospital readmission rates and other things, but there weren't any of these larger systemic changes. And you know i do wonder as liberals look and hopefully if we retake a house majority and we can think about modifications to strengthen the aca you know besides increasing the subsidies for upper middle class people like to try and think about actual structural reform and and maybe that means taking on some of these powerful lobbies like the drug lobby or taking on the ama but i think those are the sort of pieces where unless you think you're going to get to full single payer and frankly i don't think we'll get that until our next competent authoritarian populist um you know uh those are some of the things i think are going to be necessary
0: yeah i think that the i guess i I don't know if that i would necessarily like describe the ACA as like a great bill it was like this kind of i mean i I understand what it was trying to do and i sort of yes there were like obviously limitations in 2008 about related to kind of what you could get through uh through the senate uh joe lieberman's socks uh, he was the the one of the people who killed basically like the notion of any public option as a component of the ACA so blame him forever and Ben Nelson uh, oh and Ben Nelson yeah let's let's he's still in the Senate so you should definitely blame him but it is like it's one of these kind of like half measures that keeps a lot of this patchwork notion of coverage and care in place and and it's just like yeah obviously it benefits people and it like those benefits are real for for a lot of individuals but it's still, and, and and I do think that the constituency for it has like proven more resilient than I think people thought it would initially, because some care is better than no care. But at the same time, it still leaves you in the position as an individual of having to navigate this incredibly complex system. And yeah, it's better than what came before. But in a lot of ways, it does, it really takes the existence of that system as kind of like a given. And I think that we really need to talk about situations where we go beyond, like just assuming that this kind of quilt of providers and billers and whatever is just going to remain with us forever.
1: Yeah, no, I, I hear that. I mean, I think that if you look at mechanisms you can have for a bridge to single payer, a few different proposals have, have been floated. Um, one of the ones that I, I wished that Hillary had had focused more on is um putting everyone 0 to 26 on Medicare. And, you know, first of all, a lot, a surprising amount of care for children is already provided because of um, S-CHIP, uh, which is a state children's health insurance program, and because of because of Medicaid, which has far higher limits, of, obviously, for, for uh, families with children than for those without. So you already are having a great deal of federal spending provided that way. And I think this would link these two constituencies. You know, there's a tremendous constituency. Uh, the stereotypical thing is like, keep your government hands off my Medicare uh, of the old. And it it adds a very powerful thing if you could from the bottom sort of have, um, you know, the, all of all children in the in the country covered by the same program. Not only would this do wonders for maternal health, and so I think it's that or in fetal health. So I think it's actually like a, a real uh, society benefiting thing. I think you start to build a political constituency to sort of into the system from the middle, you say, well, you know, old people and children. It's not like they should have employer-based health insurance anyway. Um, and then, and then, I think it, it creates a much more sort of targetable population to, to chip at with a, a larger single payer, payer bill.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is probably a, a good way forward, especially you know, with with children. It's like it's just amazing to me that you know we still have this. We're still laboring under this kind of I don't even know what to call it, but this delusion. That originates maybe with I don't know American Calvinism or something like that, where the sins of the fathers are passed down onto the sons or what have you. Because, like you know, you think that there was a less contro, like, you you'd be hard pressed to come up with a less controversial art position that than that children don't deserve their ailments, like they have not done anything that is morally, you know, that that could be ascribed. At, that could be described as like morally consequential in the sense that they like deserve it. Um, And yet there are people out there who are like, like the Republican party basically says, Oh no, actually like children do deserve it. Like on account of like what their parents did, which is like a morally obscene argument. Um, And so I think that like the one good way of moving forward is to say, Hey, no, that's bullshit. Like children don't deserve stuff. Like we just give it to, we should just give it to them because it will make them better off. They're not like, fully functioning moral agents in their own right at the age of two or whatever.
1: And not only that, but but again, to go back to the labor market, pre-ACA, you know, people talk about, oh, it doesn't touch employer-based healthcare much. It does. If I switch jobs pre-ACA and my child had a healthcare condition, my employer could, for example, have a policy that said, oh, we don't cover that for nine months or some other, th- like, that's insane. And if you think about job lock, you know obviously what you want is you want your employees to feel free to move around now imagine you had a child with a chronic condition like cystic fibrosis something that cost six figures a year of insurance payments at least uh, for any child with cystic fibrosis and can you switch jobs? Well, not if your employer could say, "Well, for the first nine months, you know, it's it's not covered." It's, it's free- a death sentence. And and I mean, think about what you would do to maintain your current employment, and think about how dysfunctional that is for for any sort of working labor market. So it's not just morally obscene. It also, again, I think is one of these things that you know, if if you've got um, you know relatives who are very fond of pushing a free market argument, like how how is that a free market? Like how does that not actually restrict choice and make? Um, you know, commercial outcomes worse to, to create a system like that. Well,
0: right. To bring us back full circle to kind of this free market notion, is um, I, I would say that I don't think anybody really, even the people who advocate for free market, don't actually like mean it because a free market in medicine would look nothing like what we have today, right? There would be missing like any kind of restrictions on what you could do and, um, there would just be like, there would be no fail-safes. There would be no fallback measures. It would just be kind of this um, chaotic free-for-all. And if you made out okay, you would make out okay. And if you didn't, you would just lose everything, Uh, which in fact is already, you know, something, I mean, medical bankruptcies are like the number one cause of bankruptcies. So it already tells you something about where we are. Like the free market, like a free quote unquote market would just exponentially, exacerbate all of these problems.
1: Right. A lot more snake oil and a lot more poor people just dying instead of going right. into medical bankruptcy. Right.
0: You know, what you actually see when you like look at what things are being proposed, what's being proposed is not like, you know, on the Republican side, what's being proposed is not like, quote unquote, free market uh, solutions. What What's being proposed is like things that actually actively redistribute money to Certain constituencies; those constituencies are insurance corporations. They're certain doctor organizations. They are, um, you know, all these intermediaries like medical device manufacturers that like live in the interstices of this system. Um, but there's nothing free about this. Like the way that the way that this is organized incentivizes people with a lot of money and power to gain the system, not to deliver care.
1: So I, I mean, I guess I was going to ask something like. Um... Do you think someone in the Trump mold could actually push for single payer? But perhaps this week it's more relevant to say, uh, as loads as we are to dip into current events, do you think Trump will be our president for, let's say, another year?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's like I was saying before we started recording that um, there is no like there, there's no rest under this administration like you don't get time to digest what what just happened because like uh 24 hours later there's like a new outrage for you to digest so um i don't know like i i, I you know i really don't want to take it upon myself to project what's going to happen um we're in a weird moment right like uh the f the director of the f, like firing the director of the f, fbi is not in and of itself like sort of in a vacuum, you think, okay, well, maybe it's not somewhat unorthodox, but it's uh, it's something that's within the power of the president to do. But then, you know, seen in a broader context in which that director is engaged in an ongoing investigation that probably touches, you know, at least people who are adjacent to the president, if not the president himself. um, It doesn't look great. Uh, It just it just looks like um, I mean, it really looks like uh, obstruction of justice.
1: Right. And the president came on TV to basically say the story that everyone told you is incorrect. I didn't care about that rationale. The Russia thing was annoying me, which is right. Which is like one small, very step from open admission of obstruction of justice. I, I don't, um, I, you know, I'll say what I did in, in I think a, a previous podcast. I don't know if it was How Deep Is Your State?, um, or another one, but that I I don't actually think that it went all the way up to Trump, the Russian stuff, um, just because I don't think that's sort of his bag. Like, I think he's corrupt and and stupid, but I don't think he's like, yes, I'll trade you this particular Ukrainian policy in exchange for money. Like, that seems much more like Manafort, say, the guy who, like, obviously laundered tens of millions of dollars during the campaign. Right. I,
0: I think that, like, the reason why I don't think that there's, like, a direct collusion between, for example, like, Trump and Russian, poli- like, Russian ambassadors or whatever, it's just because, like, Trump is not, not smart, he's a stupid person, and, like, he would just, like, he just says things, right, he's, he's just this kind of uh, free-floating uh, stream of consciousness that'll just say whatever. Um, it's entirely possible that he, like, said, like, things to, um, you know, the Russian ambassador or something that maybe could like be construed as like something, but I think it's pretty clear that there's not like actually, there doesn't seem to be any actions behind it. Like they're not doing anything that is, that seems to be like really connected to, you know, oh, that, that you could look at it and say, oh, this is something that like mater- is like a huge material benefit to, to Russia. It's just like whatever, whatever probably happened there, if anything happened is just, was just like, Trump telling people what he thought they wanted to hear, which is kind of what he does. Um, But the henchmen that are circling around him are almost certainly like implicated in something shitty because yeah, like Manafort and his like weird uh, New York real estate money laundering scheme, which I, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but like he's got like all these different apartments in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, he's got a building a couple blocks away from me with a mortgage out on it for, like, three times the building is worth, which is all owned by some Trump ally. And then there's the whole issue of, like, he really was being paid off the books when he was working a previous campaign for, was it Yanukovych, the Russian-supported candidate in the Ukrainian election? So, like, look, these are bad people. The funny thing is, I mean, this is where Trump's an idiot. You know, obstruction of justice is something that could bring down a president. Oh. Having a bunch of your aides do crummy stuff and get convicted? Like, nope, Iran-Contra. Like, that, sh- that shit goes, and Trump would survive that. Whereas I think Trump with a—you know, it's true, FBI directors has been fired before. But I think Trump is really actually walking a perilous line here uh, where he's getting close to actions that, uh, that could actually imperil uh, his, his remaining president.
0: I, I mean, yeah, yeah
1: I, I would— maybe like to
0: think that that's true. But at the same time, it's just like the, the question here is, are Republicans willing to do anything? And the answer seems to be that they're not. Um, they've just gone full, all in. Right. They they say they don't care. Uh, it's within the president's authority, even though, you know, guarantee you that, like, if Barack Obama had fired James Comey after, you know, uh, in the in the middle of the summer, I mean, there would be there would have been we would never hear the end of it. Yeah. It would just go on forever.
1: Part of this, though, right, is because Republican support for the president is still like 85, 90 percent. Yeah, they're not paying a political price for it. Yeah. Do do you think that'll change or what, what do you think it would take for that to change? I think what it
0: would take for that to change is like evidence of actual like wrongdoing to come out. And, you know, when I say change, I think that that the change has to come, is going to come at the margins, right? It's not going to be like, oh, he's got 85% support among Republicans and now he's got like 50%. It's going to be like, oh, now that does is maybe dip below 80. That's maybe like a warning sign that, because, uh, right, elections in American politics, especially presidential elections, are won and lost at the margins. Right. So, you know, yeah, marginal erosion of Trump support, maybe that would serve as like a kind of a warning flag. But um, I think that more realistically, like what will happen is that this whole thing just drags on until 2018. And if uh, Democrats can get the house back, they can open investigations into it. And if um, you know, and maybe until 2020 Um, like, I I think that they, I think that the problem is that the, this, that the warning signal is kind of like decoupled from the uh, actual consequences by time. So until you, like, really feel it, you know, really cognize that this is, a, this is a real problem, like, Republicans are catching a lot more shit for the AHCA than they are for, like, for Trump, because, like, that's immediate and felt, whereas, like, this, you know, malfeasance going on at the top is kind of, like, people view it, I think, a little bit abstractly at the moment. But, you know, if something comes out, if, some, if, the, if the continuing investigation actually turns up something, then maybe,
1: yeah. maybe they could. I mean, I, I worry that basically there is no uh, smoking gun. So I, I'm sort of hoping he'll basically bring himself down by these type of institutional actions. But, right, you're right. Like, the the Republican politicians have, have absolutely declared that they are all in for just an, an ungodly abrogation of all the sorts of, of constitutional norms, rule of law. Like, it's got to be a bad couple months for anyone who claimed that um republicans were were in any way principled and i know I i'm not you know it's not like whatever name calling in american politics but but seriously like you know you've got prominent but retired republican figures who worked in previous administrations basically saying i'm gonna quit i can't be a republican anymore this is this is worse than than what happened under nixon etc
0: yeah i don't know actually i don't know how much stock i, I put into a lot of this um i think that you know there's the there's this tendency i think in american politics right now to view trump as kind of um sui generis um i don't think that that's correct i think that this you know trump is a kind of a continuation of uh a lot of the abuses that happened under nixon and reagan i mean we mentioned iran contra iran contra is like a great example of a situation where if you just say oh uh i didn't know this was happening um you can just that you like nothing will happen there will be no consequences um all of your, all the people who went to jail uh, in relationship to Iran Contra are pardoned. Uh, they're all, like, right-wing celebrities now. That and the fact that, you know, Nixon was pardoned uh, after stepping down. Uh, like, and, all all of of and all of Nixon's code. Yeah, and uh, all of Nixon's, yeah. All of Nixon's people. still alive. Exactly. What, what that shows is that there's just, like, no consequences, right? And and th- this this idea that Republicans, like, used to be good before, I mean, and now they're, like, bad i don't know that i believe that because each previous generation of republicans like has played has run interference for like all of these people who definitely committed actual crimes and were sentenced for them and are now like their mythical conservative heroes so to me it's just like okay now we see what the real deal is like now there's not even the pretense of like oh you know we have to safeguard these institutions blah 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 it's just like We're just going to do whatever keeps us in power.
1: Right. You're saying, look, this is still the same movement that gave Oliver North a radio show. Like, you just can't just because these guys are dumber. And I think it is actually amazing. I mean, I think Trump, uh, you know, I was a long believer in you have to be smart to, you know, get through the presidential race in the way that you do. Take down as many opponents he's done. Like, he's, he's really got some sort of marketing genius. But I don't know. You read these transcripts. And now that I think the media hates him, they're just publishing the unedited transcripts. And he sounds very uh, either demented or, or just completely um, like someone who, who's never read anything, uh, unable to he has no single idea. thought. Head, I mean,
0: really. like this is a dude who literally thought that like health insurance should cost $15 a month. And like uh, maybe in some kind of fantasy world, like even even I, I don't, the wildest advocates of like single payer don't think that like nobody believes that that's a real number. Um, and he's just like, the, the reality is that he just doesn't know anything.
1: Well, he, he did come up with, with priming the pump. So
0: yeah, he invented priming the pump, uh, as we learned this week, but yeah, there's no, there's like no, there there. It's yeah. just, um, it's just all like reaction to whatever is in front of him at the moment. But the problem is like, not just that that's what's happening but the problem is that he's surrounded by enablers, uh, primarily the Republican majority in the house and the Senate.
1: Right, who's more evil? I actually think Paul Ryan
0: is arguably. Oh, more Paul evil Ryan than Trump. is far more evil. I, I I guess I guess the this is this this comes back to the question of like variance, you know, as uh like the the um, potential catastrophic consequences of Trump are greater. Uh, but like Paul Ryan is just like steady evil. Like Paul Ryan probably wouldn't get us into a nuclear war, but in all other respects, like, it's just like, it's it just evil down the line.
1: Right. Paul Ryan would resegregate schools. Paul Ryan would cut taxes for the wealthy and have poor children die on the street.
0: Yeah, he doesn't care. And so, like, that's the thing is it, all all of these, like, all these people are like, have glommed on him because he's taken them where they want to go and they just don't care. And so my, the thing that frustrates me is that nobody or very few people in the media want to say that like just look at it objectively like look at what people are actually doing don't pander to this fantasy that you have to somehow give equal credence to like all viewpoints when some of those viewpoints are like clearly
1: deranged you wrote a great thing piece (laughs) about this about the new york times
0: there was a thing actually in like the new york times this is relevant to the hca where they were like fact checking what people were saying and on, on the one hand there was like you know here's nancy pelosi saying that um up to 17 million children could lose their insurance if the HCA passes, and the uh, like the fact checker quote unquote uh, for the Times uh, writing about this was like, well, this is actually misleading, and then cites a the report from the, the same piece of like report not reporting it's like a, the same document basically that Pelosi was talking about that literally says as many as 17 million children could like could lose their health insurance. Which is like literally what she was saying. I mean she was just repeating what was in this document and the like the fact checker was like, Oh, this is like slightly misleading. Like, no it's not. Like right. it's just like and on the right you don't wing, have to be fair
1: to this. On the right wing side, it's like everywhere the pre existing conditions covered, and the fact checker's like well, it's possible that if no state were to file for a waiver and all state governors were to act in this way, that's true. And it's like,
0: no, it's not right. I mean, you have Scott to,
1: Walker came out just he would file the next day. It was you that. just have to look
0: at what happens one step away, right? Like you can't just look at a law and like the text of that law and evaluate it in a context-free environment. The context is that If this passes, if this becomes law, a lot of Republican states will, in fact, ask for waivers, like things that are currently not considered like reasons to not allow people on the on insurance are not that, you know, this issue of preexisting conditions will, in fact, like be used as excuses to not insure people or to charge them. It's exponentially higher premium.
1: Twenty states still don't take the federal government's ninety cents on the dollar to provide health care for their poorest citizens, something that costs them more than that additional ten cents and it, it because of the hospital repayments. So it, it's 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 absurd to think, right, that these states wouldn't do so. And in general I think the time's fallen down on the job. Although I think we're hurting them in their pocketbook because, you know, Salzberger wrote a letter to a number of people or an email uh, I got it because I canceled my subscription. I really think that the people canceling their subscription are, are right, uh, and and uh, we're I think sending a message to the times that this sort of uh, bizarre. Um, I think you had a good point. It's substance neutrality, not process neutrality. Really, shouldn't uh, continue.
0: Going back to going back to the you know the Trump issue is just like don't don't enable this right. Like, it already has enough enablers. Uh, don't treat this as like a process neutral question just evaluated for what it is you know i never came up with a when we were talking about the media i never came up with like a good way of making that happen uh, and i still don't know what a good way of making it happen is it is really just like down to the individual outlets but yeah my frustration is that we don't discuss this openly and like there's just like these things that you can't say because they're no oh it's like in you know decorum won't allow you to say that like one party is worse than the other but in fact it is. And like, that's just, that's just the reality of things. Uh, Norm Ornstein has been, you know, preaching this uh, gospel for like almost 10 years now. Um, and, you know, he'll talk to whoever will listen. This is the guy who worked at the American Enterprise Institute. So, you know, he's not like some communist or right, whatever. Right. And he talks but, about this incredible sort like, of
1: asymmetric polarization. Yeah, yeah.
0: But, but, yeah. um, you know, and yeah, he'll, he'll, you know, do the radio, uh, circuit every once in a while and uh, people will, you know, sit there and nod their heads and they'll just go back to what they were doing. So yeah, if you, maybe if you heard them in the pocketbooks, uh, maybe that will uh, incentivize some sort of like rational, reality-based coverage. Who knows?
1: Well, on that depressing note.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we never have happy endings. We just have like unhappy continuations.
1: This is indeed fine. Um, Well, thanks, Jerry.
0: All right. Well, thanks. And uh, we will see you in two weeks, what will we talk about in two weeks?
1: I think let's talk about mass incarceration in two weeks.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good a good place to uh, pick up that thread because, um, as we've seen, Jeff Sessions came out yesterday or the day before and said, we're going to incarcerate literally everybody. So we will presumably be talking, we'll be talking about that and we'll be talking about how we, how we got to this point.
1: You yeah, how and, we can get out of it and finders you might want to pick up a uh, colony in a nation which i think is chris haye's wonderful book about about mass incarceration um and also as always remember to uh rate and review us on on itunes or your other podcast platform
0: we'd greatly appreciate it see you next time